So how do we fight fear? That's what we're going to learn from today's guest, world champion, Olympic gold medalist, and mom of four, Laura Wilkinson. Hey, my name is Kat Lee, and you're listening to the Hello Mornings podcast, where our goal is to help you begin and build a life-changing morning routine. Each episode of the show is designed to inspire you in one of the three key areas of a great morning, God time, plan time, and move time. And if you're not familiar with Hello Mornings, I'd love to invite you to head over to hellomornings.org to download our three-minute morning routine and watch our mini workshop that explains how you can have an amazing morning routine in just three minutes. Crazy, but true. So today we're talking to my actual favorite Olympian ever, Laura Wilkinson, and I guarantee you are going to adore this episode. Not only is her story amazing and inspiring, but she shares so many practical tips on how to fight fear and trust God. This interview is, I'm so sorry about these puns, but I couldn't help myself. This interview is gold. Let's dive in. Laura Wilkinson, thank you so much for being on the Hello Mornings podcast. It is truly an honor. I, I actually lived in the woodlands in 2000 when you got your Olympic gold and so just felt like hometown girl, hometown crowd. So it is super fun now, 21 years later, to be able to connect with you and, and share your journey and a lot of what you've learned with the Hello Mornings listeners. So um, I'd love for you just to do a quick intro about who you are and, and, and where you're at now, and then we'll dive into your backstory in a minute. Well, I'm Laura Wilkinson, a 2000 Olympic gold medalist. And yeah, I went to three Olympic games, retired in 2008. Uh, we have four kids from birth and adoption, and I decided that life wasn't crazy enough. And so I got back in the water and started to train with my four kids in tow and went to Olympic trials again this year in 2021. And so, yeah, I'm still uh, trying to figure out what I'm going to be when I grow up. <laughs> I love it. Well, tell us a little bit um, about, about your motherhood journey, because I think that plays a lot into the middle of this story and the different twists and turns that your journey has taken. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, my whole life, it was like, you learn how to execute a plan and, you know, you compete and, and you kind of just see that through. And, and for me, it was like, if it was written down, I can execute it. So I thought, okay, I'm going to be done diving. And like being a mom is the same thing. You want to get pregnant, you do the things you get pregnant. And it just was not that easy. Um, we struggled with infertility for a couple of years. Kind of, I had endometriosis and, um, you know, it, it was kind of one of those, I came to a point where I really, I was really struggling because I thought if I don't dive, I, I just want to be a mom. And if I can't dive and I can't be a mom, like who am I and what am I supposed to do? And I, I felt really lost and trusting God in that time was, was really difficult um, because I kind of came to this realization of like, I may not be a mom. And if that's the plan that you want for me, I'm not okay with that plan. I'm not okay with that. Mm -hmm. And I really, he brought me to, um, first Corinthians, uh, 12, you know, when Paul talks about the thorn in his side and he's, and he's begging God to, to take the thorn and, and God says, uh, you know, but my grace is sufficient for you. And I got so stuck there. That's, that's the verse he brought me to. And I got stuck there. Cause I was like, it's not sufficient. Like if that's your plan, like you're not enough for me. And I, I realized that that was such an issue that like, he, he wasn't enough over that. Um, if I couldn't have kids and what I realized was even if I could have kids, he still had to be enough for me because he's going to have to see me through this. And so I kind of spent like the better half of the summer of 2009, like grieving the point of like, I probably wasn't going to be a mom and I need to know that Jesus is enough for me no matter what happens. Um, and it was so beautiful because, you know, instead of running away from God, because I didn't like what was happening, I, I wrestled with him, you know, and I got shouting matches with him and I yelled at him. And it was probably one of the best, most fruitful things that I did because I stayed and I, I worked with, with him through it and came out the other side, understanding that like, not only is his grace sufficient for me, but his power is made perfect in weakness. And that's when we have the opportunity for Christ to rest upon us is when we're weak. You know, all the people in the Bible weren't these great, amazing, strong people. They were all broken and messed up and had issues, but that's when God could use them. And I realized that that's what he was doing. This is going to be his opportunity to use me somehow. And it really 
kind of changed the way I saw everything. And in a beautiful way, shortly after that, he opened my husband's eyes to the possibility of adoption because he was not all about that at the beginning. And so my husband had that heart change. We began the adoption process for our daughter Zoe from China. And during that wait for her, we actually became pregnant with our oldest, Arela. And from there, you know, now we've got four kids and it's, it's kind of been this crazy ride, but I love that God kind of brought me to the end of things, realizing mm-hmm. that I, I can't do any of this apart from him, you know, that he is my strength. He is the power. He is the one who's going to sustain us through all of these, um, you know, bumps and everything. Oh, that's, I mean, regardless of if you're listening, whether you are a mom or you're not a mom, or, you know, you someday hope to be a mom or you never want to be a mom. That's such a great point and such a great truth that whatever it is that we dream of and we're afraid will or won't happen, we have to get to that point that Jesus is enough and that he's sufficient because nothing else is going to satisfy. Said from a mom of four Olympic gold medalist, world champion, you know, nothing is going to satisfy us apart from him. Uh, So let's dive back into the beginning of your journey, and then we're going to weave it all together. So you, you you weren't born a diver. You kind of got into diving a little bit late. So what was that journey? What was that journey like? Well, you know, when I was eight years old, I saw the 1984 Olympics in LA on TV and saw Mary Lou Retton do her perfect pin vault and stand on the top of the podium and was like, I need to do this. Like I want that to be me. And so those Olympic dreams were born and I started gymnastics, um, you know, seeking to be Mary Lou Retton. And I realized at about 13 that although I loved the sport very much, I was not going to be Mary Lou Retton. I did not have that kind of talent or skill at the time that I was going to need it. Um, but that, that dream of going to the Olympics was still there. I just realized that wasn't going to be my sport. So I actually tried a bunch of different sports, trying to find where I could pursue those dreams, you know, tennis, track, softball, all the things didn't find diving until the end of my freshman year of high school, when I ran into some ex gymnast friends that had started it. So, um, you know, the minute I walked on the pool deck, it was gymnastics into the water. It was outside in the trees and there was music blaring. I was like, okay, I love this place. And kind of from day one, I just, I fell in love with it and I knew that was for me. Was it a natural talent you found when you first started or was it a bit of a journey to figure out the process and how it was different from gymnastics and how to excel in diving? Because I'm sure there are plenty of other people that had been diving a lot longer than you. Yeah, it was it was a bit of both um, because with gymnastics, you have a lot of the same acrobatic skills. Um, you, You have the air awareness. You understand where you are in the air when you're flipping or when you're twisting. But in diving, you have to land on your head and not your feet. Find <laughs> a big change, and that's important. Technique, yeah, very, very big difference. Um, and the, the technique is very different as well. So, a lot of changes. Um, but I was learning quickly, and and I was in this group of all ex gymnasts. So we were kind of all going through it together, which was really. I think special and and it made us competitive in like a good way, not the caddy girls tearing each other apart, but like, um, Hey, you know, we're all going to do this at the same time together and we're going to make fun of each other as we do it. And we're going to egg each other on. And it was, it was really the best thing. Um, I I just got really, you know, fortunate with the timing and, and the people that were in there with me. So when did you realize that you like the Olympics were an actual possibility for you? Well, I always thought it was an actual possibility. <laughs> it's just funny that would just never really cross my mind that it couldn't be a possibility, but it was really, it was a hard thing to tell my coach. Um, cause I felt embarrassed saying that out loud, like in my head, mm-hmm. in my heart, I always wanted that, but to say it, cause you didn't really think you're worthy of it necessarily, especially to somebody like my coach, he had been a three-time Canadian Olympian and he had, um, you know, coached at the Olympic games. So he, was the epitome of the Olympics in my mind. And so when he sat me down to ask me what my goals were in the sport, um, probably thinking going to college or something like that. And I, I sheepishly kind of under my breath said, I want to win the Olympics. <laughs> he laughed. And that was what floored me is he didn't laugh. I totally expected him to laugh in my face. And he just said, okay, well, to do that, we need to do X, Y, and Z. And it was just like, okay, okay. We can, we could really do this, you know? And so I think I had been told I was never good enough. And a lot of things, you know, you're too tall. You're not this, you're not that, you know, you don't fit the mold. And to have someone here going, Hey, I, I I believe that that's a legitimate dream. And this is how we're going to go about getting there. Like it just, it absolutely broke all the glass ceiling and suddenly anything was possible. And, and it's amazing how just one person being in your corner and believing that you're capable of doing something amazing 
can change everything. Yeah. So it sounds like you were, you were shaped a lot by the fact that you had this community of other girls making that transition from gymnastics to diving with you. Then you had a coach who like totally believed in your dream that you thought people were going to laugh at. But then you also had a coach who was a naysayer who had the opposite influence. And I would love to know how you respond to that. Cause I know so many people listening, they're like, I'm not going to the Olympics. I'm not an athlete. But we're all pursuing something and we all need that community around us. We need somebody a step ahead or 500 steps ahead who believe in us and can show us the way. But we also all have those naysayers. So tell us a little bit about what that experience was. Uh, well, it was kind of back to back. I, I was in drill team, like the dance team my freshman year while I was still pursuing other things. And um, I had found diving and I went to tell her I had found diving and she told me I was too old to start a new sport. You know, and I, I, I mean, you're a freshman. Yeah. And it's hard hearing those things from a coach, an adult who you're supposed to trust and listen to. And I'm just like, well, I just started this a year ago. Like, how can I be told one year later? And so I started that diving, um, completely ignoring her advice. And, uh, I started diving and was on the high school diving team, as well as our club team where my, my coach Kenny that believed in me was, um, and the high school coach was not a big fan of divers. He's a swimming coach and he did not appreciate us being there. And we butt heads a lot. And at one point he just decided to cut me from the team telling me I was a waste of space. And I lost a half credit from school. I had to get no study hall class. Um, my mom, parents were really upset. It was kind of a big mess, but you know, him telling me I was a waste of space, it could have gone either way. You know, when somebody, again, like an authority figure, a coach, somebody you're supposed to look up to and listen to and trust tells you something devastating like that, you will either believe them and always doubt yourself and think you are nothing, or you're going to say, oh yeah, I'm going to prove you wrong. You know, it's like usually one of those two roads is kind of how you take those. And I was really lucky to have somebody again, like my club coach, Kenny, tell me, no, you can do these amazing things. It doesn't matter what he says. You can do this. And, and that just voided out everything that that man said. And it obviously didn't go away because it's still like 30 years later makes me really angry. But that was a fuel for me. It, it kind of lit the fire. And um, that's not always a bad thing if you can take it that way and not let it just completely crush you. So what do you, I mean, you had that support behind you, but like internally, what was faith a part of your journey at this point in time? How did you let it not a crusher because to have two adults back to back say that to you at such kind of a formidable age, you know, it is another thing to have another external person tell you, you know, no, you can do it. But just internally, like what, what, what is your kind of personality been, or what was your faith journey at that, at that point in time that allowed you to, to take it and let it be a fire instead of a, you know, a burden? I was not a strong believer at that point. I, I went to church and stuff. I, I can't really say I was following um, Jesus at that point, but I was, I've always been really stubborn and uh, I just, I got angry and I, I, I get very convicted on things like this is not right. It's not just, you shouldn't have said that. And I, I got really angry um, and that worked for me at that time. You know, now when people say things like that, I, I understand that they are projecting their thoughts and opinions and their fears on me. And it's not necessarily true. And that's something I try to tell my teammates now, because I, I train with, you know, a lot of young kids that are in uh, junior high and high school. And I try to tell them when, when somebody tells you something really negative or, or feels really devastating, it does not mean it's true. Other mm -hmm. people's opinions do not add up to truth. Most of the time, you don't have to believe that you don't have to take that on as your truth. They are projecting on you what they are scared of what they're intimidated of by you. Um, they're projecting those, those fears and things onto you and it doesn't make it true. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing that I try to remind myself of is those, when those doubts and fears that you bring on yourself too, when those thoughts come in your head, it doesn't make it truth. It's just a moment of fear, a moment of doubt. And how many times does God say, do not fear in the Bible? It's natural to fear, but we don't need to because we can trust in him. He does not give us a spirit of fear and timidity. He gives us a spirit of power and love. And we need to trust that and understand that that fear is from the enemy and it is an absolute liar. So thank you for joining us for the Hello Mornings podcast. That was the mic drop right there. That was amazing. <laughs> that is such good truth. So so give, give us some practicals, because I know that in your journey, you surely faced a lot of fears because so I play tennis. There's 
there's no, um, I don't hit the water at 30 miles an hour from 30 feet up. <laughs> you know, there, nothing's going to happen to me if I mess up in tennis. You know, I know there's so many fears that probably you have faced with different injuries that you've had with just being on the world stage. And when those doubts come in, whether they're from yourself, whether they're from other people, what are some practical ways that you fight the fear? I, you kind of have to, first of all, realize that it's happening because sometimes it sneaks up on you and it's this real quiet voice. And over time it gets louder and louder and it starts becoming this giant roadblock uh, in your path. And so I've learned because I know that voice now I can recognize it early um, and start kind of challenging it. But what I've really learned is that you can't avoid fear. You can't push it to the side and try to pretend that it's not there. As soon as you deal with it, that's when you can diffuse it. If you, if you try to pretend that it's not there, you are spending a lot of energy and a lot of time actually interacting with it, trying to push it away. You're touching it, you're messing with it, and you're actually giving it more power and you're making it stronger. And the more time that goes, that goes by that you haven't dealt with it, that fear grows, it lingers, it, it morphs and it gets bigger and harder to deal with. So the sooner that you can deal with it and face it head on, the sooner that you will get rid of it. But just remembering too, that, that fear isn't really real. It's not a tangible thing. Fear is based on feelings, you know, and feelings ebb and flow like waves. They come and go. They're not stable. That's why we trust in God because he is a rock. He is rock solid. He does not move, but the way we feel from day to day are completely dependent on our happenings, the things happening around us. It's like the difference between happiness and joy. You know, happiness depends on those happenings. It's a feeling, but joy is something steadfast that you can have in God, no matter what. And so understanding that fear is much like happiness. It's very fleeting and based on the way you're feeling and the circumstances around you. So the quicker you can recognize that it's a feeling and it has no actual power over you. Um, and you can start facing it head on and say, okay, why am I scared of this? You know, and actually saying what, what, are, what is X, Y, and Z that I'm afraid is going to happen? Okay. What if that does happen and start working your way through that? Um, it really, you really start to understand that, okay, if this is the worst possible thing that can happen, what do we do to prevent that from happening? And how can we, when you start creating a plan around that and, and diffusing it, I mean, it's amazing how quickly that fear will dissipate, even, even huge, overwhelming fear. Like I had a, I actually wrote about this in my book. Um, there was this dive that I had put off doing for like five years. And uh, let me tell you, that built up a lot over time. And I got so scared of this dive, not because it was a dive I couldn't do, but because I hadn't done it, it became like this thing in my head I thought I couldn't do. Not because there was any reason I couldn't. I just hadn't spent time trying to learn how to do it. So when I finally went to do it, I mean, I have never had to face something so big and so dramatic and go through such a process. But really, it, it kind of step by step, we did all the things because I was like, what am I scared? I'm afraid of smacking. I'm afraid of not knowing where I am in the air. I'm afraid of, you know, X, Y, and Z. And so I, I told my coach and we made a plan. This is how you will know that you can see. We have to learn how to make sure you're spotting the water every single time in the air. Um, know that I will call you like our coach gives us a call like hup, you know, so we know when to kick out of our dives. Like you can trust that I will call you. I have always called you out of your dives. I will get you on your head. You have to trust me in that. You know, what's the worst thing that can happen? You smack off of 10 meter. And let me tell you, it hurts. It's like 30 miles an hour. It feels like a car wreck done it before I walked away, you know, like the very worst things that could happen we kind of hammered out and how to avoid them. But if they do happen, I'll still be able to get up and walk away. And it was one of the scariest things I've ever done getting up there to actually do that dive. But once I did it, it was like, all of a sudden I could do anything. And not only did I learn that dive, I ended up learning that dive in a, in a harder position that only the men were doing. I ended up learning all these other dives that like other women weren't doing. So, you know, when you break through those fear barriers, mm -hmm. the world becomes brand new to you. It's, it's like you are a new creation all over again and you see the world brand new and what you're capable of doing. And it all started with just facing the fear and addressing it and not running away from it. That's, mm -hmm. that's so good. You know, I, um, a tiny part of my story is that I, I never knew my mom. She died when I was nine months old. And so whenever my kids turned nine months old, I have three kids. I, was, I always had this internal fear that something was going to happen to me. Uh, and then when I had actually I don't remember which kid it was, but during one of them, I had a, a test come back that they had concerns about. So I had to go get an additional test. And in the period of time that I had to wait for that test to come back, it just felt like this dark cloud, like, okay, this is it. This is what I'm afraid of. And at some point I just had to turn and face it. And then I was like, okay, so if this test is bad, if something happens to me, what am I so afraid of? Because ultimately 
God, I want whatever brings you the most glory and others the most good. And when I got to that point of whatever happened was fine, as long as it brought him the most glory and others most good, it just let this fear just lifted off of me. And so while I've never dived off of a, you know, 10 meter platform or hit the water at 30 miles an hour, what you're saying about just turning and facing the fear and thinking about the worst that could happen and being okay with it because we know that God is with us. I have felt that, you know, is, is just like you just described as well. And so I just want to encourage those listening, whatever fear you're facing, just take 20 minutes today and sit with the Lord in that and face your fear. And I also love what you said, Laura, about how when you're afraid, you know, you could be afraid in the middle of a dive, not sure when to come out of it. And so you just listen for your coach. I feel like that's, that's such a powerful analogy for us mm-hmm. as well, that we're stepping into a fearful situation that we just need to listen for our coach and what he's calling us to do. And that could be the very thing that, you know, ends up being a winning thing or, 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 or a hard thing. And so we just need to listen for him. So I love that, mm-hmm. that kind of analogy. Um, so mindset has been really important for you. And one thing that I am just so completely fascinated by is how, so you broke your foot shortly before the Olympic trials in, I guess that, does that make that 1999 or the Olympic trials in no, 2000? It was in 2000. Okay. okay. In 2000. Uh, and so you could actually not dive for a period of time. So you just had to go and imagine your dives or in athletic terms, visualize your dives. And, and I love this so much because when, you know, I work with women talking about building habits and doing all these different things and, and really thinking about changing their lives and transforming their lives, we often get stuck on, you know, our identity. Well, I'm not really a morning person or I'm not really self-disciplined or I'm not really whatever. And I think there's so much value and power in looking ahead to what you could be or what you could do, whether or not you're currently doing it. And that is your story is such a tangible example of that. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what happened with that and and, and how it helped you just the process of visualizing your dives. Um, I love the way you keep bringing this back to uh, other angles. I, I love that. Um, yeah. So in 2000, I broke three bones in my right foot um, about three months before the Olympic trials. So not, not real ideal timing. Um, and the way I broke it, uh, like it was like the three middle metatarsals and one of the bones actually slid underneath and it had calcified to the other two bones. So it's like standing on a rock. And they said to do surgery um, would have put me out of trial. So we casted it the way that it was, like hoping <laughs> that it would feel well enough to walk on, maybe jump off of. Um, so during that time, I couldn't get in the water. And my coach, like we, we did so much video study. Like I would put all my best dives on a videotape together in the order I was going to compete them, And I would watch it over and over again, trying to memorize every detail, slow motion, fast motion, all the things, put on my favorite songs, you know, while I was watching it. Then anytime I would hear those songs just playing during the day, it was like the dives would be on instant replay in my mind. Um, and when I was supposed to be in the water training, um, my coach would hold crutches and I would hop up the ladder on my one good foot, kind of shimmy out to the end. And I would go through all the actions of my dives, like, you know, all the way from the start to grabbing my hands and pretending like I was swimming through the water. Um, and it was, you know, we did that for, for months, for hours a day, for months. If there are people waiting, like in practice with me, I had to wait my turn in line. Like he really wanted me to feel like I was in the practice. Sometimes I would sit on the side of the pool deck and just look up and imagine myself diving. Like it was a video, like in third person. So I spent a lot of time, you know, imagining my dives, but also putting myself in scenarios. Like I knew who my competitors were. I knew what dives they did. I knew, you know, what they were capable of. And I would put myself in every kind of scenario. Like I was in the lead. I was behind. Somebody had missed this. I missed this. You know, who's going to hit this next? And I kind of put myself because I had all this time in all these different scenarios. And it was really cool because I didn't get my cast off till about two weeks two, two and a half weeks before the Olympic trials, which is like no time at all. But I got my dives off within like three days, which was really fast for me. Um, but it was because I had been up there every single day thinking about him. It was really like, I hadn't missed much of a beat. And, you know, I, I ended up winning the Olympic trials by a really big margin, making the Olympic team, which was awesome. But at the Olympics, um, you know, there, there came this moment I was doing. Okay. I was behind though. And there was this moment of the third dive out of five dives in the final where I had hit something. And the four girls that were ahead of me completely missed. And it put me in the lead. I didn't know that, but I, I knew that I was like within striking distance at that point. And I think, cause a lot of things that, that happened, I'm kind of making a long story short here. A lot of the things that happened, there were so many weird things that happened during that final in Sydney 
Um, but I think because of all the mental preparation that we did, I was prepared for kind of that wild ride in that moment. And I was prepared to take my head to places I wasn't ready to go. Like my, my coach said before my fourth dive, he said, do this for Hillary. And he walked away. And that was a friend and a teammate we'd lost in a car accident three years before. And, uh, you know, I'm like, this is the most important wow. moment of my life. And you're trying to make me cry. <laughs> like, I don't understand, but I trusted him. And I knew we had prepared for this and he wouldn't push that button unless he needed to. And, you know, and that really made a difference because it completely changed my thought process and, and why I was doing what I was doing. And so, um, I really think I probably would have made the Olympic team had I not broken my foot, but I can guarantee you, I would not have stood on that podium unless I broke my foot, because that is what prepared me to do what I did. And so it really helps me now, whether it's an injury or some kind of just hiccup in life or some kind of obstacle or roadblock, I, I try to look at, okay, what are you teaching me? How are you going to get me through this? What are we going to have to do? Because I know you're equipping me for something right now. And that's how I see it now is whatever is standing in my way, this is what God is going to use me use to equip me for whatever is coming next. Um, and so looking at obstacles with that kind of perspective is like an opportunity kind of changes the way you, you handle it. And it makes it easier to have joy in the middle of the storm and to praise him in the middle of suffering, because you know that he is using this for your good and for his glory. And you can trust him in that. Cause I, I mean, I'm, I'm thankful that I can see that he has done that. And so now I can always know that whatever lies ahead of me, whether it's the outcome I want or not, it is for my good and it is for his glory. And he is still growing me and sanctifying me to be more like him every day. And I think that's why I'm so glad that you've written your book, that you're sharing your story, because a lot of people maybe don't have that story to look back on in their own lives. But when we can see it in other people's lives, we can be like, okay, this can be different going forward. I can believe like this. I can choose um, to trust in him. And I've seen him be faithful in other people's lives. And I can believe that he's going to be faithful in my life. Uh, one thing that I'm really um, fascinated by, and that again, I, I know is a struggle for a lot of women is this idea of perfection versus progress. And as you know, uh, an Olympic level diver, and you're preparing for the Olympics, you, you've, you know, you've done all these amazing things in your sport, and suddenly you can't do the most basic thing of getting in the water. And so often that's exactly what stops us. We're like, well, I can't read my Bible for an hour this morning, so I'm just not going to do anything. Or I can't work out today and do my entire routine, so I'm just not going to do anything. Or whatever that might be, so often that missing of perfection makes us not make any progress at all. So was it hard for you to just scale? I mean, I'm sure it was all the way back to just having to imagine diving. And then can you speak to how that humbling process, you know, kind of helped you know, how you pushed through and overcame the desire for it to be perfect. Uh, it's, it's funny. Cause I'm really, and my husband jokes with me all the time. I'm very much an all or nothing person. <laughs> so I want to be all in doing the whole thing that the biggest that I can, the best that I can, or I'm like, eh, <laughs> like I just very, that's just very much my personality. And I, so this is a real struggle for me. What was actually good about when I broke my foot and, and we were having to think outside the box, I mean, my coach got really creative and I felt like I had a plan and it wasn't what I wanted to do, but at least I had a plan and I was like, I'm, I'm all in, you know, if I'm, if this is all I can do, I have to do it a hundred percent, you know, but there was definitely a part where I was pretending to dive on the 10 meter and the swimmers were laughing and, you know, laughing at me in the pool next to us. And I was like, how is pretending to dive going to get me to the Olympics, let alone the top of the podium, you know, but but I remember in those moments, um, that the time I really wanted to give up, some of my young teammates came up to me and, you know, I was 22 coming out of college. These kids were anywhere from eight to 18. And I remember them. I don't know if they recognized that in me or it was just something that they felt they needed to say, but all of a sudden they were just like, Hey, you got this. You know, I, I believe in you, you can do this. And it, it, it got to a point where I would do like a pretend entry into the water. And on the other side of the pool, they'd be like, I didn't see a drop of water. I'd give it a 10, you know, <laughs> They started cheering for me, you know, in practice, and it probably looked completely insane to anybody watching, but it made me laugh and it made me feel like I was part of it and that I wasn't alone anymore. And, you know, it also, it, it makes me realize so many things with that, that it doesn't matter how old you are, what station you are in life, what you're doing with yourself, you can make a huge difference in somebody else's life just by being there and, and making little moves when somebody needs it the most, like it changed everything for me from a point of like wanting to give up 
to, to actually getting that cast off, getting my dyes back off and, and making the Olympic team. And, and in the, one of those critical moments in that Olympic final, when I was trying to win that gold medal, I, I realized, you know, after my coach told me to do it for Hillary, it, it made me think about not just Hillary, but all these teammates that I had, the ones that were cheering me on that, you know what? I might be their only option to be in this moment. All those kids are not going to make the Olympic team. You know, I'm, I'm kind of living out their dream for them. And this is as much for them as it is for me. And that wasn't intimidating to me. That wasn't like a pressure. It, to me, it felt like I had this power behind me. And so I think it's really important who you surround yourself with, you know, are they, are they helping, you know, lift you up this ladder? Are they pulling you up the ladder? Are they dragging you down? Like, like we get some, some kids are like a cancer on the team. They're just these negative values and they want to bring everybody down. You know, who, who are you and what kind of attitude are you presenting to those around you? And who are you surrounding yourself with? Because that really, when push comes to shove and you're in hard situations, you need people that are going to lift you up and support you and remind you of who you are and what you're doing and that you are here mm-hmm. on purpose for a purpose. Um, you know, and this is not all in vain and that you have worth and value in those moments. So really who you surround yourself with, I think is really crucial as well. And I think that's such an important point in today's day and age when so many of us are isolated or it's easy to be isolated. It's easier just to do online church, or maybe you have to do online church, whatever it is, it's easy to pull away and to remember that we need that community. We need even the discomfort of community because honestly, those kids that were cheering with you, they looked goofy to the swimmers too. They were subjecting themselves to potentially being made fun of and teased by the kids in the pool that had been making, you know, laughing at what you were doing. But instead they chose to enter into your goofiness. And in that process, they entered into you're winning the gold medal, you know? So there's a lot of power in stepping into what somebody else is doing and believing in them. And just that, that community I think is so huge. So, Okay. Just so, so many things I could talk to you about. Um, so you win the gold medal, then you win the 2005 world championships. Is that right? Okay. And then, uh, you go to the Beijing Olympics and then you retire. And at this point, how old are you at this point? Are you 30 at this point? Yeah, I was 30. So then. A few years later, um, you know, you, so you have your family and all that. And then a few years later, you're like, hmm, I think I can maybe still do this. Tell, tell us about that thought process, because to me, and I'm sure to a lot of people, too, if we bring back the fear factor of I don't like to fail at things. And when you're correct me if I'm wrong, potentially twice or three times older than some of the potential competitors that you can be competing against in a very physical sport. Uh, there's no guarantees. And the courage that it took to make a comeback and to like boldly say that you're coming back just is super inspiring to me as a 46 year old mom of three. And I think is probably been true for so many who followed your journey. So can you talk into a little bit about your, that decision to come back and, and yeah, yeah, I'm just going to stop there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when I retired, it wasn't because I didn't want to dive because I loved diving and I started late. And so I felt like at 30, you know, maybe I finished off the career, but it always felt like I was just a little bit behind everybody else. Um, But I was really ready to be a mom. Like that was the whole reason I wanted to retire. And you know, when I wasn't able to get pregnant at the beginning, I, I did play on the springboards a little bit for a while. My coach just said, just come be happy. Just do something just for fun that makes you happy. And so I, I played around on the springboard for a little bit and until I found I got pregnant with my daughter. Um, and then, you know, I, I did some commentating for NBC at like the 2020 or 2012 Olympics and the 2016 Olympics. And I remember watching 2012 and cause it was my first you know, non-athlete Olympics. And it was really hard because my event was not very good. And compared to where it was in 2008, it was like the level had just dive bombed, you know, and it was really hard. Cause it was like, man, if I just hung out for four more years, like I would have been right in the mix, you know, or what. So, you know, you, you, you struggle with that. And it was like, but I had a little daughter at that time. We had another one coming home. So I was trying to just put those aside, but, but it sits in the back of your head, you know, like, I wonder mm-hmm. if I could still, but the timing wasn't right. And when we had my son, 
in 2014, um, I remember thinking, well, if I get back into shape, maybe I'll put a suit on and go play in the pool and just, you know, whatever, just see. And, um, it was a while, you know, until that actually happened when my coach was like, you should just come play when all the kids are in preschool that one day a week, you know, (laughs) come come play in the pool. So I finally got the courage to put a suit on, (laughs) which was really hard after like nine years, you know, but I, um, I put a suit on and I came in for like an hour on a Monday and just, you know, did some fallen basic things off three meter. And it was so cool because the minute I hit the water, it just felt like home, you know? And so I just kept coming back for one hour, one day a week. Um, just, just kind of just having something for me, some me time and, you know, things kind of started to come back kind of quickly. And I asked at one point, you know, would I be crazy to try this again? And my coach immediately said no, but the Olympics were that summer. And, um, you know, I was like, well, well, I'll think about it after. And we were in kind of a unique position with our jobs at that time where my husband was like, no, why don't I stay home with kids this fall? And you just try, like, just, just be all in for the fall and see if that's really something that you think you can do. I mean, by the end of the fall, you know, four or five months, like you'll know at that point, like either, yes, I want to do this or yeah, no, I'm not doing this anymore. (laughs) And it was funny because by the end of that fall, like starting in January, I had my entire list off the 10 meter again. So I was like, okay, I think we're going to do this. And so, you know, I competed that year, got like second at nationals a few months later. Um, you know, and I was like, okay, this is going to be, this is, maybe this won't be that, that bad. This is pretty cool. You know, it feels, feels kind of like old times. Um, but it was just, it's been quite the road. You know, we had trouble bringing home our daughter from Ethiopia. Um, so we had to kind of take a step back there and go to Ethiopia several times, finally brought her home and got her unattached to my neck. Um, and I started getting back <laughs> in the water and my arms started collapsing. And we found out that I had some really bad neck issues. And so that December I had to have a two level cervical fusion on my neck. And I spent most of 2019 just coming back from that surgery because it's pretty massive. I've never heard of another platform diver coming back from something like that. So I, I took my time because I'm a mom first and I meant to make sure I wasn't doing anything stupid, you know? And, and by the end of December, like, so a whole year, I had just started to get my dives off again, started competing early in 2020. And then the pandemic hit and the Olympics were postponed for a year, you know, so we were kind of like back to square one again, training in the backyard, doing flips in the backyard. And, um, you know, we kind of started getting back into it. Well, we didn't have, we don't have a platform where I am. So we didn't have access to facilities until about three months before Olympic trials this year, you know, so it's been kind of this crazy road. And sometimes I wonder like, why am I doing this? But, but every time I was like, here I am, God. And I remember saying this before I got back in the pool. I was like, here I am, God, send me. Like, where are you going to take me now? It's going to be so exciting. And it was like, I always come back to the pool. And I'm like, really? (laughs) You have to go back to this place. But I remember hearing this person one time saying, you put your yes on the altar and then you wait to hear what it's for, you know? And so it really was convicting to like, if this is where God wants me, this is where he wants me. And my, my yes has to be a yes, no matter where that takes me. And I don't, I don't know what the end of the story is. I mean, Olympic trials didn't go that great for me this year, but it's been a fun road and I'm still learning. And I feel like he's still growing me through it. And, and, you know, I have to trust his plans, even if I don't totally understand them because his his ways are much better than mine. And so I'm uh, just really thoroughly trying to enjoy the ride right now. You know, and you, you say, you know, the Olympic trials didn't go that great for me this year. I wonder if, you know, in, in our minds, your story is about winning the Olympic gold medal or winning the world championships, but maybe in God's eyes, your story is about the people you've inspired to adopt, the women you've inspired to follow their dreams, the people that you've inspired to push past the naysayers and to, to do the big things. And so, you know, you made it at 43 years old, you made it to the finals of the Olympic trials, which is just like ridiculous to me and so inspiring. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I think so much of your story comes back to the great community you had. Your husband was like, Hey, just try this. Let's just see where it goes. That's mm-hmm. amazing that you have that your, your willingness to put progress over perfection, no matter how hard that might be, you know, after being a mom and having kids, you had to go back to, you know, square one essentially, and then work your way back up. And I think it also speaks to staying focused on one thing. That might be the thing that God just kept bringing you back to. But I think so often a lot of us are like, oh, I'm not really thriving in this. I'm just going to try something new. This is working for this person on Instagram. I think I'm going to try doing this. And a lot of times success just comes from putting one step in front of the other and doing the same thing over and over and over again until we, until we reach that point. Um, So 
I would love to know know, a lot of things that we talk about in Hello Mornings are about building habits, about routines, and not in the sense of a checklist, but more in the sense of having a rhythm, about utilizing the brains that God has given us to automate some things so that we're not constantly, you know, living out of patterns of fear or failure or whatever, but living out of patterns that, you know, we've developed with him of, okay, I'm naturally going to respond with the spirit of prayer, or I'm, these are the things I'm going to do. Like you were talking about when you put the music on and you would, you were visualizing the dives, you'd put the music on and immediately, immediately you'd start thinking about those dives. And in regular people life, we can do that too. We can have these cues that help change our minds and help us think about things. So I'd love to hear just the role that maybe different routines or habits have played in your life, athletically, as a mom, in your faith, whatever, uh, in this journey for you. Yeah, I love routines. Um, I do so much better throughout routines. And I, I really was reminded of that this summer because after trials, I was doing nothing over the summer, just kind of taking a detox break from all the things. And I struggled. Like, I do not like not having anything on the calendar. Like, it's just really, it's hard for me. And so, and it wasn't really enough time to really start a routine because I didn't know what we were doing. So it was really, it was kind of this weird holding pattern and I didn't like it. I was very uncomfortable in that. So I, I love structure. I love routine and, and not like super tight. Like, you know, some people get so rigid on their routines. They almost become OCD or like, um, what's the word? Like superstitious a little bit. If I don't do this right, things are going to, I don't like that. You know, I, I love structure, but I love it being flexible to change if it needs to change. Like I'm, I'm okay with that, but I love, I love a general structure of things. And, um, you know, I have tried to like, it's really funny because everybody's like, if you read your Bible first thing in the morning, just set your day up great. And that's, I am not a morning person. <laughs> <laughs> I have tried and the struggle is real. I'll read my Bible in the morning. I won't know anything I read because I'm not awake yet. Like, I'm not, it's not, my brain doesn't operate that way. And so for me being prayerful in the morning and, and I have to set stuff up the night before so that the morning is easier because it's a mad rush here with our kids and everything else. But you know, we, we do try to create little habits. Like I pray with my kids on our way to school. We talk about what do we need to pray for today, you know, and, and all those kind of things. And we, we structure those things in so that it becomes a habit. It becomes our routine. And I think that, you know, whether it's happening at this specific time or moment, but we have that general plan. Um, that's really kind of where I thrive. And so, yeah. And it's, um, and for me too, like I, I have to leave notes for myself in places, whether it's like to-do lists or a scripture or a quote, or like I have to put reminders up because, and I put them in places where I can see, like, I got a big card that's sticking up on my mirror because one of my friends sent it to me and it was just a scripture that really spoke to my heart. And so it has been up there. And then I put another scripture up next to it. Cause they were like, two really big points I needed to like constantly remember. And so all I had to do is glance up at them and remember, you know, every morning, like as soon as I wake up and before I go to bed, like those would be the things that I see. And it, sometimes it's just kind of, you know, little triggers that get your mind like mm-hmm. reset on the right things and on God. And um, so that for me is really handy. So I have lots of sticky notes <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a fan of sticky notes. I have about five packages sitting right here. I love them. Um, So what would you say to the woman listening who maybe has some sort of dream? She feels like she's maybe past that point in her life, Um, or or at least that's what she's the story that she's been told, but it's still a fire inside of her. What would you say to what what would you say to her? say, try. I mean, the worst thing that's going to happen is you fail, you know, and failure sucks. I mean, it doesn't feel good, but in failure you grow. And that's like Mm -hmm. the best way you can realize, okay, you know what, if I just fixed X, Y, and Z, I could actually do this or yeah. Okay. Maybe that wasn't a good plan. And I, I am past that point, but maybe there's another Avenue or something that's similar to this, that maybe I fit in better, you know? So I, I think, I, I think you just try it. Like if there's something that is lighting a fire in you, God has probably put that on your heart for a reason. And you need to go. Like when God says, come, like you jump out of the boat, you don't worry about how you're going to walk in the water. You trust that he is going to hold your feet up when you get there, you know, and you got to keep your eyes on him so that you don't start sinking. And I think that's kind of what I've really learned is it's because it's not easy like to, to step back into a diving role, knowing that I could fail and humiliate myself and all of these things. It, it doesn't change what I've done in the past. It doesn't change who I am or my worth or my value just because I screw up or I fail. Um, it, again, it doesn't feel good. It emotionally is not satisfying. <laughs> you know, it's horrible. But 
when you can learn from it and grow, it's often more valuable than the success. And so mm. I, I think like, I, I love it when people talk about failing forward, because that's, that's just something you have to go through in order to learn how to do something better or, or to take a different avenue um, to get to the place you need to go. So good. Kind of like Siri or Google Maps. You know, if you take a wrong turn, it's always rerouting us. It's It uh-huh. never is like, missed it. <laughs> Too bad. You turn. <laughs> yeah, it's always rerouting us. Okay, so I have a few questions from the Hell Mornings community that uh, they wanted to ask you. So um, Allie says uh, she'd love to know your take on social media and all of that at, at, at your level, like how did it, as you were pursuing going, you know, your Olympic comeback, uh, cause I guess there was, there, there wasn't social media in 2000, was there? I don't really remember. <laughs> no, no. <there's> email <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how is that different? And, and how do you handle social media as a high profile athlete? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't have like a huge, huge, I mean, I have a, a decent following, but I, you know, I don't have these like millions of fans that some people have. And I I can't even imagine what that kind of pressure might feel like, but I think it's important that if it does get overwhelming or you find yourself getting sucked in or feeling a certain way, good, bad, or, you know, not as valuable or something like that, just turn it off. It's okay Mm -hmm. to take a break. It's okay to walk away for a week or a month or whatever you need to do. People do that all the time. And I think it's healthy because we think like, everything revolves around this and how many followers I'm getting and who's liking this and who's commenting and how many people does this have person have? And, or, Oh, like I got a lot of divers telling me before trials that like, it's really hard for me to look at other divers, social media, because they're posting all these perfect dives. Well, guess what? They got to the meet all their dives weren't perfect. Of course, people only want to post the perfect stuff. You don't want to right. post pictures of your kids crying snot balls in the back <laughs> of the car. You want to post the picture of them happy with their siblings where everything's perfect. You don't want to post the bad stuff. And it's not that we don't, just want to present the good things. Those are the things that make you happy, the things that make you feel proud. And of course, that's what you want to show to people. But just remember that like all of life is happening in between everybody's social media posts. There's a lot of life happening there in everyone's life. And so you can't get caught up in that. And if you are, don't follow those people or turn social media off, delete the app from your phone for a week. You know, I mean, try, try to get away from it because you've got to know your boundaries and maybe even have somebody kind of be a check for you. Like if they see you leaning a certain way, um, you know, and you know, that comes from being on social media, like have somebody give somebody the, the job of saying, okay, I think you need a little break from Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is. Like, just, just take a little break. Um, sometimes it's good to have people call you out cause they can see it better than you can. That's good. And you know, I love again, community accountability and to remember that social media is not the boss of us. <laughs> we can delete it and the world keeps revolving and people continue to love us. Uh, I love that. So Nicole wants to know what your kids think of diving in your journey. And specifically, she says she'd love to know about the conversations you've had with your kids about why and how you do what you do. Because Nicole says, I find it hard helping my six-year-old to understand that I need to be at work. And she'd love to know kind of your approach. That's so hard when they guilt you like that. My son was saying all year, when are you going to be done diving? When are you going to be done diving? So to be like, buddy, I, I understand you want to spend a lot of time with me, but this is what mommy is called to do. This is what mommy loves to do. And there's a reason I'm doing it. I want to spend all day with you too, but we both need to do these things. And so we've had a lot of talks and it's hard because um, my older ones understand a little bit more, but the little ones just want you home with them all day long, uh, you know, and that's just not the way it is. But I think reminding them that, that God has a purpose for all of us and that we do these things for a certain reason. Um, and then when we come together, that makes that time even more special, you know? And so, um, yeah, it's, it's hard. And sometimes my kids, like they'll, they'll come to the meets and they're like, whatever. Oh, we're supposed to cheer for you. Oh, did mommy (laughs) go like they, and they don't care. Like I care and I want them to care, you know, and they're like, whatever, (laughs) I'm not interested at all, but it was really cute. Cause, um, we, we went to a couple of meets, uh, that were like smaller meets so the kids could be on deck, you know, after the meet and stuff. And one of them, I had this terrible competition and I got third, which doesn't sound bad, but it was a really small meet and there weren't very many people. And so, you know, I was just kind of like, oh, you know, trying to, to not be angry right after with myself and all my kids were right there. So I was kind of trying to like hold it in and 
um, my kids, they call, I didn't realize they were doing awards and they called my name. So I, I ran across the pool deck to jump on the award stand. And I didn't realize all my kids were following me. It was like this trail of little <laughs> following me down the deck and they jumped on the podium with me. And so it made this really unfortunate competition, this really special moment. Cause they were standing there with me. And then as soon as this adorable moment's over, my son looks at my medal and he goes, Oh, this isn't gold. How come this isn't gold? <laughs> Okay. So it was really good though, because it made me accountable because I had to react the way I wanted to tell them I should be reacting. You know what I mean? Mm. I wanted to be angry, but I had to tell them it stinks to lose. Sometimes mommy didn't have a great competition, but I'm learning now what I need to do for next time. And so it was really hard not to be upset in that moment, but having to actually live out what I'm trying to explain to them to live out. So I feel like they've made me very accountable to how I need to be and respond and not, not just react, but responding appropriately. Mm, That's good. That's good. Kids are good like that. I love that. Mom, it's not gold. I love what kids think about the world. It's so refreshing. (laughs) Um, Louis Zelda says, sometimes I can get so nervous that I sabotage myself. Uh, She wants to know how you keep um, focus and confidence and how do you keep it simple under pressure? So you're going up for your last dive where you you were already in first place. uh, And so it was like a, you know, win or lose the Olympic gold medal. What is going through your mind at this point in time? Um, yeah. So I think in those kind of moments, it's, you can realize the gravity of the situation for a moment, but then you have to let it go. And when you've got the task at hand, if you're thinking about the moment, you're not thinking about what you have to do. And so Mm -hmm. in diving, we try to like dive stupid is what we call it, where you, when you walk to the end, you don't want to be thinking about anything else, but maybe the one or two actions that you're trying to to correct. Mm -hmm. You have to let it all go and just trust your body and let your muscle memory take over. And so I think that there, there are moments where it's okay to see the big picture and to have concerns or think about all those things. But when you're in the moment, you have to stay in the moment because otherwise you're, you're not thinking about the right stuff. So you have to be able to be fully present um, when it matters. That's so good. So often we're, you know, thinking about the impact that this could possibly, we're thinking about the future, we're thinking about the past, but there's a place where we just need to put on our stupid hat, I guess, and just (laughs) do the thing in the moment. You know, I, I play tennis and I often have to do that. And I've actually begun to, sounds weird, but I will like hum or sing if I'm struggling with hitting a certain shot, because then I have to think about hitting the notes instead of hitting the shot, which I will then freak out about if I'm thinking about it too much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. So that's so, cool. I like that. Yeah. There's have you ever read the book? Um, the inner game of tennis. I had it somewhere here, mm-hmm. the inner game of tennis. So it talks about like having self one and self two and self one is the physical part of ourselves that already knows how to hit a tennis ball or how to do a dive. Self two is the mental judgmental part of ourselves. And so, so often when we're in the middle of a practice, our self one will miss a shot and our self two will start judging it. And so a lot of the book is about how you need to just trust yourself one to do what it already knows how to do. And then let yourself to notice things, but not judge things. So like if I miss a shot or you miss a dive, it's like, oh, I missed that. That was interesting. Mm-hmm. I noticed it went out instead of, oh, I'm a terrible person. When we have that in diving, because like we do multiple dives, like in a final round. And if you miss one, you can't dwell on that because you still have yeah. several more left. And you're like, I have to let that go. I can't think because as soon as people say, oh, man, I'm out. Like then of course you're out, but I have one world championships doing my second dive for threes. So, you know, you can't let that go. You have to just stay in your zone because the next dive still has to be good and you don't know what the rest of the competition is going to do. So that's, I like that. That's a really good. And I think that can be applicable to us in the real world, even though I feel like it's almost harder to apply in the real world because there's this thing for many of us where we feel like guilt is a good thing. We feel like, oh, I failed. And now I need to just embrace my feeling bad because I did bad. And so we just sort of sit in that a lot longer than we should, because there is no next dive. There is no next shot. Well, but, but there is, it's just maybe not right. in the next moment, but I think, and, and I think it is important to agree because like after a, a tournament or a competition or something that doesn't go well, um, you know, I talk to athletes about like grieving, like you have to grieve mm-hmm. when it doesn't go well. Cause if you don't, then you just get bitter and angry and, and it just kind of carries on and it festers. But if you can actually grieve and get all the emotions out, And then, okay, it's time for me to now look at it logically, you know? So I think 
maybe not guilt, but like actually grieving it. And cause you have to let that, you have to have that like emotional release. Then you can let it go and start like taking the emotion out of it and evaluating what went right, what went wrong. How do I, what do I need to change for next time? Because in, in real life there, there usually is a next time, you know what I mean? There might be yes. a next, you know, whatever you have to do or something similar that's going to come along, maybe not the exact same thing. Um, but yeah, if you're hanging on to guilt and feelings like that, it, it's going to just fester and carry over into the rest of your life. <laughs> I really like that delineation between grief and guilt. And it's important to acknowledge the feelings, but maybe not hold on to them too long. Know when it's time to let go of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a super practical last question for you from Joyce. She says, how does she meal plan? Like, do you eat the same thing as your family while you're training or do you have to like plan separately? How does that work? I, it's so hard. Um, yeah, I feel like we make two dinners and things a lot. Um, but I mean, uh, the kids are actually getting a lot better at eating, um, whatever we make, they at least try it. They have to try it. They don't have to eat like the whole thing. Um, they're actually getting a lot better, but I've just discovered I'm on a really difficult path right now where I discovered that I have a, a high resting metabolic rate that I didn't know. And so I'm not eating enough. So now I'm trying to what they call a reverse diet. I'm trying to eat more and I'm having the hardest time like eating all this food. And it just sounds so weird because it sounds like, well, that would be great. But I feel like I'm living in the kitchen. It's like, I have to eat before practice. I have to eat right after practice. I have to eat an hour and a half after that. I have to eat, you know, I'm like, so it's, um, it's been really difficult now, but even during this process, I'm finding that the kids like some of the meals we make. And so, you know, I might make it for a couple of them, but usually we're having to do at least like two separate dinners, which is sometimes hard, but, um, you know, they make their lunches at night before school the next day, if they're not buying, they, they have to make their own lunches and we just approve, make sure like there, you know, there's protein, <laughs> carbs and there's a little bit of everything, yeah. um, you know, and, and breakfast, um, is pretty easy too. It's, it's a little more quick. So it's, it's not that bad, but some days, um, dinner can be a little, a little bit of a struggle. You know, I've read a lot about, uh, not a lot. I haven't like in-depth researched. I randomly read articles on the internet about actors who had to like prepare for certain roles and how they had to gain weight and eat all this stuff. And they were just, it was, it was harder than having to lose weight for roles because you were just having to eat when it was the last thing that you wanted to do. It's not, and I have to like, double my water intake too. So I just feel, I feel like the state puff marshmallow, <laughs> man, you know, and I'm just like, well, you know, it's, and I have to put a swimsuit on, you know, <laughs> it's not comfortable, but I, again, it's like, I don't feel good about this, but I understand how it's going to work. And I've seen it work for people. And I, I have to trust the process and I have to be mm. okay with feeling not okay for a little while, because it will pay off in the long run. I, you gotta, you gotta play the long game. You know, you mm-hmm. have to look beyond how you feel again, right in this moment and understand what the point is and where you're going with that. So yeah, worth it. <laughs> so worth it. So worth it. Laura, thank you so, so much for being with us today. Uh, I just feel like I have learned a ton. I'm sure all of our listeners have. It's honestly such an honor to talk to you. All my kids are like, mom, is it today? Is it today that you get to interview? I'm like, yes, I'm going to be cool. I'm not going to like totally be a nerd, but I love the Olympics. I loved following your journey, being of a similar age and stage in life. It's just been incredibly inspiring um, what you've done. And I'm so thankful that you've brought so many people along in the journey. You weren't like, I'm secretly going to, you know, make a comeback. I'm secretly going to do this. You, you've brought so many people along and inspired so many people to do uh, things they might not have normally done and followed God in ways that they may not have before. So thank you for that. Where can people find you online? Uh, tell us a little bit about your book and your podcast so they can hear more from you. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you go to laurawilkinson.com. You can find just about everything from there. I, I kind of live on Instagram. That's usually uh, where I am. And I'm always in my messages. Feel free to send me a message, a DM. Love to talk to people in there. Some of my favorite conversations have happened in Instagram DMs. Um, but yeah, I have a, a new book out called Life at 10 Meters, Lessons from an Olympic Champion. It's uh, it's not an autobiography, but it's really kind of just lessons I've learned along the way. Um, and it was really funny. My daughter, my 10-year-old daughter loved the book. <laughs> it was really oh. it was funny. I just didn't think she be interested, but she's like, I had no idea. And she's like telling me all these lessons. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, that's great. You know? So, you know, moms read it with your, with your daughters, with your sons. Like there's really, uh, encouraging lessons in there. And I think it'll help you figure out how to face challenges too. a lot of stuff we talked about today. Um, and then also, yeah, I do a podcast called the pursuit of gold, where I talk to other, um, elite athletes and coaches and experts in the fields of like nutrition and sports psych and all that stuff. Um, just to inspire, encourage, but also give like resources and tips and tricks 
tools um, just because we all can use the support and um, need, need that from time to time. So yeah, find me on there. Awesome. And I'll say to the Hello Mornings community, you may not be an athlete, you may not be into sports, but if you're part of Hello Mornings, you know that I'm always referencing sports and referencing athletics because I think it's such a microcosm of life. So you might think you're not going for the gold, so you don't need the Pursuit of Gold podcast, but you do because I promise you, you will learn so much, especially if you just, you know, do say a little prayer beforehand. God, open my mind to understand how to apply this to my life. Uh, I just feel like there's so much we can learn from the trials and, and everything that's involved in the world of sports. So Laura, thank you so much. And I hope we get to chat again soon. Thanks, Kat. This is fun. Well, friends, I hope that you are inspired to trust God, that you are equipped to fight fear, and that you are encouraged to follow your dreams. I am so thankful that Laura Wilkinson was able to join us for this episode of the Hello Mornings podcast. Now, do you want to learn more about beginning and building a powerful morning routine? Just head over to hellomornings.org and download our three-minute morning kit, and it's going to give you everything you need to get started. Now, if you're enjoying the Hello Mornings podcast, I'd love it if you would leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever it is that you listen to this show. And of course, all the links that Laura and I mentioned in the episode today are in the show notes for your easy access as well. Now, my name is Kat Lee, and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. I hope we've inspired your mornings so that you can begin waking up for your life and not just to your life. I'll see you on the next episode of the Hello Mornings podcast.